All right, welcome back to the podcast, friends. And I think it's episode 102 or 103. I don't even remember. I've lost track now a while since I recorded an episode. Well, actually, I recorded this a while ago, but then life happened and COVID hit our house. And anyway, we are recovered now. I finally have the time and the energy to get this episode edited and posted. And now we're getting ready to celebrate my puppy's one-year birthday. These are the things you do when you are an an empty nester, okay, and all your kids are gone. You have puppy parties. Now you understand my life. But let's talk about this episode because Dr. Carolyn Moore is fantastic. I just want to carry her around in my back pocket all day long and have her encourage me. She's just realistic, down to earth. Uh, We talk about the struggles that women have in ministry She has a new book that's just been released called When Women Lead, which came out of her dissertation work. I pretty much binge read it today, like the first half of the book. It's fabulous, so well-written, articulate without being condemning, but also realistic, like which we talk about in this episode. We need to acknowledge the struggles. They're there, and we're not doing anybody any good by ignoring them. Uh, So we need to acknowledge them or in an articulate way, and then address how are we going to overcome these issues? What what are the strategies that we can take? What are the things we can change, right? What are the problems that we can solve? And then how do we move forward? Great questions, great conversation. I want you to read her book. <laughs> so that will be in the show notes. She also has her, her own podcast. She's a church planter, a lead pastor, and I guarantee you're going to want to listen to this episode through a couple of times. I know I am, even though I already recorded it, and then I listened to it again when I edited it. I'm going to listen to it probably a couple more times. Uh, Get ready to take some notes and enjoy the episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? It was great to meet you at the Wesleyan Holiness Women Clergy Conference. And now did you come to the conference with a group or did you kind of come solo? Just me. (laughs) Yeah, I came for the first time to Two years ago, it was the last, like, we were all in the hallways trying to talk to our churches about shutting down. That was the last one. And and it was the first time I'd ever been there. Andrea Summers was the one who introduced me to it. I just had no idea it existed because United Methodist women mostly would not be at that kind of conference. So um, I am extremely excited about the thought of developing a you know, a following of uh, global Methodist women for that particular conference. I think that's a great place for us to land. Yeah, I know you're in that middle of the, your denomination is trying to figure out what you're doing and yeah. which, which direction you're going. And yeah, um, it, had, it was the first one I had been at. I had known about it for, you know, the last several of them, but I just hadn't been able to get there. And uh-huh. I was just, just really impressed to see, you know, and hear what I saw. And then the workshops were just amazing. And the variety was what I was struck by of 
So, you know, sometimes you can go to a conference like that and I think everything is specifically about why women should be allowed to be ministers or preach. And I'm like, there's so much more, um, you know, it was just nice to mm-hmm. sit down with other women and talk about theology and not have to explain myself. So will you talk about where you're serving at right now and kind of how you got there? So when I was in seminary, I became extremely interested in what exactly Jesus meant to leave us when he ascended into heaven and he left the church to his people. Um, and, and, I, and I found myself asking people, is, is what we have now, is this what Jesus meant? And where have you seen the true church at work? And that conversation became a little bit of an obsession for me while I was in seminary. I ended up calling people all over the country, all the way from California to the East Coast. And, um, and over and over, I found myself pointed back toward or heard people point me back toward a little church in Washington, D.C. called the Church of the Savior. It had been started in post-World War II America uh, by a chaplain who had discovered while he was um, serving during the war that the best way to care for soldiers spiritually was to draw them into small groups. (laughs) So he really developed this small group network on the battlefield. And so when he came home, he decided to start an ecumenical congregation based on that same small group experience. And while you probably have never heard of the Church of the Savior, big churches that you and I both know the names of would would say that their initial, or at least their, their founding pastors would say that their initial inspiration came from Gordon Cosby and the Church of the Saviors, like Saddleback and Willow Creek and North Point. Big churches can trace their inspiration for small group discipleship to, to, um, to this little church in Washington, D.C. that never had more than 150 members. Another thing that, that characterized this church was its, its missional flavor. Every single small group had its own mission, and their missions were extremely well-developed. So there was a group that slowly developed uh, health care for homeless people, and they now have like a hospital that's four or five stories tall, completely professionally staffed, and it it serves homeless people. In Washington, D.C., there's an evangelistic coffee shop. There was, uh, when I was was visiting back in the day with the Church of the Savior, there's a a retreat center outside the Washington, D.C. area for folks to get away for a while. There was, um, they they bought up low-income tenement buildings, you know, that were being condemned and they would refurbish them and then, then, then offer them at 40% of the market value to elderly adults. So all of these ministries were coming out of this tiny little church. And the only way in was to join a mission group. That's what they call them. So I went and visited the Church of the Savior when I was, after having all these conversations with folks and discovering it in that way, And I truly was inspired by their structure and inspired by their love of mission and how well developed it was. And I hoped that I would be, that God would move me right into the church of the Savior. And instead, what God said was that the church of the Savior doesn't need another member, but the world needs another church of the Savior, particularly my tribe needed the model of a church of the Savior. So when I planted after seminary, I planted with that church and that model in mind. 
And true to that church and that model, I my congregation has not grown to be any huge significant size, but we do have we have six very well-developed local ministries that are all volunteer-led. And it's really been really exciting to watch. Now, I was planted in the suburb, suburbs. I'm a clergy person in the United Methodist Church. And so I went where I was sent. And um, a, a, a medium-sized town suburban context was very different than inner city Washington, D.C. And so my challenges in terms of developing this model of church have been very different and it's been slow growing, but I happen to, I just really love watching ministry develop organically out of the gifts and call of people and to see that ministry continue to develop so that, so that it's not just we've checked that box, let's move on and do something else, or let's jump in and jump out of, you know, being with people, but really developing long-term relationships, kind of doing that long obedience in the same direction kind of thing in our in our missions and ministries. So that's how it started. I, I, I had a call and a, a real sense of passion toward uh, not church planting in general, but really developing that particular model. And I, I like how you say, okay, I'm not necessarily... Well, you alluded to, I'm not necessarily a church planter, but this model, right? Yeah, right. Um, and the that that long obedience in the same direction of how maybe we make too much of how big and how you know how fast we're growing or how many numbers, but what's the impact, right, in our community? Uh, how yes. how how developed is the ministries that that you've invested in? How how are you developing those? And are they deep and rich? And uh, I love that, uh, you know, kind of the idea of less is more. Right. Um, is there one, one of your ministries in particular that is kind of like the heartbeat of who you are? That's a good question. Um, I think what I'd say is we've, we've, we've actually taken where we started really in developing was just just inviting people into our space once a month to receive services. We were, as I said, in a suburban area, and there's not the infrastructure for serving people in our suburban area. So we became the clearinghouse for our county for services. And once a month, we would just have all the services that were available come to our church, and then people could come and in a couple of hours, we'd see a hundred or so people, and and uh, they'd file through, and we and we over time began to see where the real gaps in our community were in terms of serving people, and so we we settled in three areas: education, empowerment, and employment, and we we then began to develop ministries, particularly in in those three areas: education, empowerment, and employment. And today we have six. Um, programs. I hate calling. I hate that word. Programs, but projects or ministries, and, and we've and they're and they are developing, and we've placed them under the umbrella of a separate nonprofit. And I could talk all day about that because that structure really, like everything, took off when we started the separate nonprofit. Now all of it is under the same roof. We're all um, under one twenty thousand square foot warehouse roof. The church and the nonprofit, and the the there's a it's it's a very permeable fence between those two organizations. Um, the the nonprofit really exists to provide the serving opportunities for our church, 
The nonprofit also exists to provide services to our community, and the nonprofit exists to, to offer another door to folks who may not walk through the doors of a church, but who whose problems or or life circumstances definitely beg for the voice of Jesus Christ. Each of those, uh, the six programs are, um, one is called Exceptional Circles, and it's a kind of an umbrella term for all of the ministries that serve children and young adults with disabilities. Um, we have a low and no apartment, uh, low, uh, excuse me, a low and no income apartment complex downtown that we provide services for. We actually have a staff person there in their community room. And uh, so that's the Mosaic Center at Maxwell House serving low and no income adults with disabilities. Um, so maybe disability kind of defines a lot of what we do. We, we, we actually get children, young adults and adults covered uh, between those two ministries. But we also do GED tutoring free for adults who are ready to um, move forward with their lives. We also do a thing called Women of Worth where we pair um, professional women with women who are coming out of incarceration or coming out of tough life circumstances um, so that they can inspire and, and walk with each other for ways and um, begin to open doors for somebody who's ready to move forward with their lives. We have a thing called the pantry and it's it's a food ministry, but it's not open to the public so much as as um, food that we that we organize and and kind of offer to a couple of different places in town where we're building relationships with those residents and, and then you know, kind of using food as an invitation or an open door into a, um, into a group of folks. And so these ministries, all each, each of them, and then I guess the last one is Free Tuesdays, which is our recovery ministry. Um, that's the one that I'm most heavily involved in. And uh, so we do recovery for um, codependents and uh, chemical dependent folks. And also we, we, we just started a group for people who deal with sp spiritual trauma. And in each of these ministries, our whole design is to develop relationships um, and earn a voice in folks' lives so that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that we offer doesn't hinge on your needing to hear the gospel, but we hope that what we do makes the opportunity to hear the gospel a winsome and um, positive experience. That is so inspiring. Um, <laughs> and I appreciate that you say that not every not every ministry is specifically geared towards, you know, coming to faith in Christ, right? It's not. And I think that's where we get in trouble with, with quote unquote programs, right? We, uh, programs in and of themselves aren't evil or bad or wrong. Right. It's just that we typically fail to do two things. One is we don't do the formative and summative evaluations. Are we evaluating why we're doing it? Do we have a clear objective of What's the purpose of this? And then I think the other thing that we run into, especially in the church, is that we think every objective is get someone to pray the sinner's prayer, right? That's not the objective of every ministry. Um, yeah. Right. Although I will say um, I, I am in complete agreement with you. It is about um, whether we see people as objects or people. Really, that's the difference. So, so we work really hard at building relationships. We're in no hurry with a human being who comes to us for, for, with a need. But, but our ultimate desire is to see them made whole. 
And there's no way for me to separate that desire to see someone made whole from my desire to see them um, have a living and active relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's what you're saying is exactly right in that if my, if my goal is only to get you to pray the sinner's prayer, I've turned you into an object of, uh, that, that really is there to, to fill my need right. rather than it, it, if my goal is to be in genuine community with you. If my, let me say it this way. If my goal is to be in community with you and the core values of my community are Jesus at the center, then eventually my, my hope, my desire is to see you moving toward that center. We have three core values that guide everything we do at Mosaic, and they are Jesus at the center, all people matter, and community is essential. And they almost operate as kind of like stepping stones. If community is essential, then every um, every project that we start is with the ultimate hope that we are providing meaningful, supportive community for folks. And anybody, anybody can come. Anybody can be part of that community. And the community itself has a core value, which is Jesus. And we will never dumb down that core value or, or step back from that core value for the sake of making anybody feel uh, more comfortable, you know, in their own dysfunction. <laughs> but at the same time, I recognize that it's their ride. You know, I used to have a, um, when I was in a spin class for a long time with a guy who would say, you know, when you start to get tired in the middle of spin class and you're cheating and you know, pulling your tension rod way back you know, and pretending like you're pushing when you're really just, you know, easing it. He would say, he would say, you got up and you drove, up, drove all the way over here at 530 in the morning to do this. Why would you cheat yourself? Friends, it is your ride. You decide how much you're going to give this morning. I loved when he said that. I was so convicted when he said that. And I found myself saying that more and more to people um, in our community. Friends, it is your ride. It's your spiritual life. It's your uh, choice to be whole. And I am, I am absolutely 100% convinced that the best option for any human being on the planet is Jesus Christ. But it's your ride, ultimately. We just want to give you an open door to experience that. Well, that's good. I mean, we could just stop right there. And that would be- <laughs> <laughs> I could tell you're a, an excellent uh, preacher. I'm a good salesman. <laughs> Ready to plan another one now after hearing yeah. that. You shared your heart and your vision for your community. Do you have some new things coming on the premise? Or are you just trying to uh, find your footing again during the, you know, after the pandemic? Right. That's a great question because I, you know, we really have sort of just started catching, feel like we've caught traction again. So we're in a place at Mosaic where we're just happy to catch traction again. We we work very hard at getting every person at Mosaic into a group. Um, and so now that people really are beginning to put rhythm into their lives and they're not doing the hokey pokey with the church so much, um, we're focusing heavily on discipleship inside small groups and mission groups, you know, just like what I've just described. And so there's that. I'm also very aware the next generation of leadership at Mosaic is young. And we have thrown the pandemic kind of began, the, the pandemic fog began to lift. I was 
very excited to see a much younger congregation. And that's been really exciting to me. And I, I sense that God is giving me the, the grace and the permission to begin shaping the next generation of leaders um, so that I can step into another role here um, and hand off what we've what we've really begun. And so I'm excited about that. The people who are serving together with me are excited about it. I think we all see it. And that's been fun too. It's not going to be one of those situations where people are blindsided uh, by a shift in leadership. And I'm not, there's there's not one single cell in my being that thinks about retirement or you know, something different. I just am very curious to see how God reshapes us so that um, I continue to serve while I make space and offer offer uh, leadership opportunities to other folks in our community. I think it's a very important, in fact, that we all mentor the next generation, whatever age we are. And I'm it's been a true joy in the last, I would say, five to seven years to begin mentoring the next generation and to really see that emerging as a as a core value out of the pandemic. That is good news. That really is uh, that you're seeing, you know, this younger generation step up. It's one of the things that my husband and I have been concerned about is this next generation of sharing the message not just a message of Christ and the wholeness of in Christ, but then to see them take the leadership within the church, um, whether it's, you know, literally or figuratively, figuratively, you know, inside the walls of the church, but just doing that kingdom work. Mm-hmm. So a little shift here, because I know you have a new book coming out, doing all you do and then writing a book right there is just um, impressive. Um so will you talk a little bit about like what was the catalyst for the book? Kind of what's the premise and like how you hope that this will help women lead? So the catalyst is actually betrays what I, everything I have just said. I know why I planted a church. I planted a church because I was so fascinated by the model of a true missional community. I believe that what we have today is a true missional community and I'm so pleased just to watch that develop. So that all sounds pure and beautiful and wonderful. But the fact is, when I planted, I immediately, this was 19 years ago. And 19 years ago, the model in the U.S. was big box rapid growth church. They tended to drop people in. It's called They call them parachute drops. Drop somebody into a community where there was growth already in a suburban area and then watch the thing just kind of explode quickly and do it with with tons of marketing behind it. And the whole thing was very much sort of like a, the, a, a Billy Graham crusade flipped upside down so that rather than the pastor going out, you just gather as many people as you can in and you build a big warehouse, a big a big. Uh, community space and you focus heavily on your Sunday morning. The exact opposite of what I felt that God called me to models. But when I started, that was the model. And I'm a rule follower and so and, and I'm also extremely competitive. And so I would I, I just immediately found myself caught up in that that model of planting. 
and I have great guy friends. I have some amazing guy friends and colleagues who um, have, have been so kind and, and, and inclusive of me and their groups and in their coaching and, and their idea sharing and all of that. But I would get in the rooms with them and, and these guys were all, they had all planted and were serving huge churches, that big box rapid growth model, you know, 1500 people on Sunday morning or 800 people on Sunday morning, these huge churches. And then there was me. And I would look at them and I would think, now these are great guys. I really love these guys. And I'm really grateful for the incredible gifts that, that allowed them to make those churches happen. But they're not that much smarter than me. And while I'm not the brightest bulb in the leadership box, they're not that much better of a leader than me. Why is it that they can do what they're doing and they get the results they get? But when I do it, it doesn't have the same results. And that was just crazy making for me. And I would say, so is it my leadership? Is it my, or could it possibly be my gender? Could it, is it possible that my gender has something to do with, with the difference in the way these, our, our two churches are, are growing and, and uh, developing. And people would say, my friends would say, no, it's not that. You're great. Nobody even notices. You're fine. And you would think that would be encouraging, but it actually had the opposite effect on me. It was crazy making all by itself because if it's, if it's not my gender, and I'm trying really hard. I'm working a lot of hours, probably more than any of my guy friends. And I'm doing everything they're telling me to do. And I'm not getting the same results. What is it? Is it just me? I mean, what is it? And that led to another series of those obsessive phone calls across the country where I was just started asking people, where have you seen women plant churches and plant them effectively? And I discovered that there just aren't that many of us. And, but I found a woman named Mary Kate Morse. She's a professor at Fuller Seminary. She was a four square pastor. She had planted a couple of churches, one by herself and one with a team before she went into academics. And, um, and I called her one day and I just happened to catch her when she was in Atlanta, Georgia. Fuller's on the other end of the country. She just happened to be in Atlanta, Georgia, two hours from where I live. And so I, I drove to meet her and we sat in a piece to joint and I just wanted to find out what is it, this, what is different between men and women as church planners? Is it just me or is there something to this gender thing? And she was incredibly encouraging and incredibly realistic about the whole thing. And, and, and I, I, my question for her was, what are the challenges women face who, who choose to plant? And, and how do we help them lead beyond those barriers so that they can plant successfully? She said, um, that sounds like a, a burning question to me. And that is fodder for a doctor of ministry degree. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I just want to know how to plant my church better. I just want to know how to grow my own thing. I don't want to know. I don't need a doctor of ministry but after two or three, four years, maybe of just never being able to get rid of that question in my head, I ended up getting a doctor of ministry. And, and, and actually, I did it thinking to myself, this really is a question worth exploring. I do want to know for myself just to satisfy my own curiosities, but mostly 
I sensed that this might be a question, that the answer to this question might be a gift I can give to the next generation. Because I do know how crazy making the experience had been for me. And while I kind of made it through those very hard early years and, 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 and now feel like I have a missional community that's the right fit for my call, I still would like to offer the next generation of female church planters a, a, better, a better way of doing it than what I had done. I just, I don't know that my way of getting things done was the best way of doing it. So I, I did the dissertation work and then almost immediately realized after I did the dissertation work that, um, that dissertations sit in the library and are only read by other doctoral students who are trying to write their dissertations. So if I wanted this to get to a wider audience, I probably needed to, to write, turn it into a book. And so that's what I've done. I've taken the academic work with all the research behind it, the research that I did um, looking at surveys and uh, studies and the business world and the academic world of psych and psychology, education, all the studies are there. The church has not done this work, but the studies are out there that, that really teach us the difference between male leadership and female leadership, both as we experience it as women and how other people experience us as leaders. So I took all those studies and then I put them together with my own experience and with the experience of literally dozens of church planters and, and as well as pastors, female pastors, female business leaders, um, people inside and outside the church, nonprofit leaders. I interviewed lots and lots of people across the spectrum to try to get a good rounded view of what it looks like when women lead, what barriers or challenges women face uniquely. Now, it's not to say that men don't have their own challenges, and they do actually, but our challenges are different. So we need to understand our challenges. And then how do we lead past those challenges so we can, so we can effectively lead? So the book is for women who want to plant a church. The book is for women who are leading as a pastor. The book is for denominational leaders who are trying to understand how to place female leaders. Um, the book is for male pastors who want to understand how best to raise up uh, women in their flock who are gifted and anointed for leadership and uh, especially ministry leadership. The book is for nonprofit leaders. It is for families and others who advocate for women in, uh, in ministry professions. And so we kind of expanded it, you know, to, to reach beyond my initial conversation about planners so that it really does speak to women leaders and those who want to support women leaders. So first of all, I would say, man, you're you're speaking my language, especially at the beginning. I'm like, it is crazy making, isn't it? <laughs> I've had I've had the same conversation to myself. I'm like, I'm not a stupid person, and I'm like, what is the deal? You know, I see. I'm like, I could do the exact same thing that you do, and has a complete, almost in some ways, sometimes it has almost a completely opposite effect of what they do, and it has been frustrating and crazy making and. So many times I just had to say, look, you just got to do your thing and just, you know, ignore it, put the blinders on, those kind of things. But then, you know, I look at my peers and my colleagues and I think, 
you know, but they, they are good resources, right? Uh, my male colleagues are intelligent and, and have good resources and, and want to, you know, offer advice and all of those kind of things. Um, so let me just say that you, what you just said, it, it, you've just kind of, in your own personal experience, summarized everything that's in the book. <laughs> right. Um, it's the the part where you're just looking at everything and thinking, thinking, why is it that I can't seem to do what my male colleagues are doing? Warren Bird and Ed Stetzer did a study several years ago of church planters across the United States. They just wanted to do a survey of planting and kind of get the get the landscape of planting in the United States at the time that they were doing the survey. And it wasn't just females. It was, it was just, it wasn't any specific denomination. It was just the, what is the state of church planning in the United States in this season of the, the country's kind of religious history. And they discovered this, that when a church planter is aware of the challenges they will face, they are 400 times more likely to succeed as a planter. This isn't saying that when a church planner is aware of the challenges and you've told them how to move past them. No, it's just when you understand the challenges, just knowing the challenges makes you more likely to succeed because you're able to say, okay, I recognize that challenge. I recognize exactly whether this is something I'm actually going to be able to do anything about or not, but I realize it's not me. And so what happens internally to yourself is that rather than depleting your sense of, of call or your sense of self-worth or your sense of ability, you actually are able to look at that from a place of, from, you know, solid ground authority. I can, okay, I get it. I understand what's happening here. And um, so let's move on. And when you, when I have that kind of confidence in myself, the people around me have more confidence in me. And so there is this psychological effect of just knowing the challenges. So I spend the first half of the book talking about the challenges. And then I spend the second half of the book talking about um, tools to, to move beyond those challenges. And among those tools, I'm glad you mentioned, I mean, yes, your male colleagues are resources. Yes, they are door openers. Yes, they, they have skills and gifts as anybody does in your life. They have skills and gifts that can offer you value. And so we don't have to be afraid of simply of going after that. The fact is we're all busy, busy people. We all have 24 hours. We all spend our 24 hours. You can't expect folks to come while you sit passively by and feel sorry for yourself. Or, you, know, you can't expect people to come and just, all right, looks like you need help understanding how to write a budget. Looks like you need help with uh, how to how to build structure into your church that's expandable. And it looks like you need help with whatever you fill in the blank. They're not going to come running to you while you sit there and feel sorry for yourself. You actually have to learn how to go out and ask. But when I feel more confident about what my circumstances are, I, I, I then have that kind of confidence to go out and ask. You know somebody who actually has funding that will help this ministry that I'm working on. Can you open that door for me? Friend, I see that you have an incredible uh, small group structure that actually is uh, expandable. It's, it's, it's working as your church grows. Can you teach me what you've done and let me glean what I can from it um, so, that, so that I can continue to build a ministry um, what, or, or 
you know, I, I see you're doing great missional community stuff. I want to come and learn from you what that structure looks like so that I can inspire my own church toward that direction. So yes, yes, in both cases, when I know my challenges, I am more likely to succeed. And I, let me say, by the way, that I, I looked at the same kind of statistics um, produced by the Small Business Administration. So this is people not inside the church, but beyond the church, entrepreneurs who have started businesses and found the exact same results, that when small business entrepreneurs understand their challenges, they are exponentially more likely to succeed. The years that tend to be the hardest are years five through 10. First four years, we look like we are excited. We have, we still have money in the bank. <laughs> you know, you know, you have this this influx of of new people when things are new and everything looks like it's going great. And then around years four and five, it starts to get higher. Uh, sorry, it starts to get hard, and that's when I'm already tired. And five through ten, those are the hard hard years for small business owners, for church planners, for pastors for leaders in general. And those are the years when we really need to lean in, be assertive and find others who can open doors, who can mentor, who can coach, who can help us beyond the, um, the, the sort of the roadblocks that we found in our growth patterns. That's interesting that you say that too, because so often, especially in the church, um, now I know in the, the UM church is a little different because you have appointments and stuff, but mm -hmm you know, for my denomination and some of the others, it seems to be right around year four where people start looking, you know, like, oh, I've done everything I can do for four years and now I'm going to go to another church, right? right. Especially our male colleagues, right? But women don't have as many uh, options. So we tend to stay, stay a little stay. bit longer. Right. Uh, but yeah. And, and so they're like, uh, well, uh, I guess I'm done here. <laughs> We're going to move on. Right. One of the, one of the beautiful gifts of female uh, leadership for a church is that we that we do tend to be more collaborative and build teams and that can be life giving both to the leader and to those who lead with them and and it can help us to extend the life of our appointment or our the, the place where we have have settled and so um, yeah there are gifts there are great gifts embedded in our being if we can only put words to them, define them, acknowledge them, and then lean into them. Sally, and I can't, I can't remember her last name, and she co-wrote it with uh, the guy who wrote What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Yeah. Marshall Goldsmith had written the book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Now, that one I remember reading. Yeah, and then when he started doing um, workshops and book tours and stuff like that, he started realizing that his top 10 or whatever were really geared towards men. And he found that that some of the stuff he was telling female CEOs was the exact opposite of what they should be doing. And so they collaborated to write basically how women rise is the female version of what got you here won't get you there. And so I'm curious just to see how much of that is fleshed out in some of your research of what you discovered, because I've talked about how women rise on the podcast in some other episodes. So I'm really eager to see when, you know, your research and how does that line up within faith communities? Um, you know, is it similar? Is it different from uh, people who are working in the public sector? 
when it comes out, I'm going to have to have you come and do like a mini coaching session with some <laughs> women in my district. Uh, I'd be thrilled. You have a podcast also. So did the podcast come out of the book or is that separate? Is that part of, is that out of your church? How did that happen? The podcast was totally me um, wanting to do anything I can do to have more time with my son-in-law. <laughs> I, lo- I love and adore my daughter and my son-in-law. That's my weak spot. I will do anything I can to be near them and to spend time with them. And my son-in-law is in ministry also. And uh, one day he said to me, you know what you need to do? I've been blogging for years. And uh, he said, you need to do a podcast. And I said, "Uh, the only way I will do a podcast is if you do it with me. So he said, okay. So we we really just made the podcast an extension of the blog site. Art of Holiness is what it's called. Both both the blog site and the podcast, Art of Holiness. And um, kind of spent time together talking about what you know, what, what, what were the things he wants to talk about? What are the things I want to talk about? We settled on three, three main kind of emphases. One is supernatural ministry, because that's a thing for me. I, I really want to see uh, folks in ministry serving, uplifting, teaching, um, exposing the kingdom of God and the supernatural, uh, yeah, the supernatural God who, who rules in a supernatural kingdom. Um, then also Pierce is kind of has an interest in seeing the generations mentor each other. So we talked, he, he wanted us to find opportunities to talk about intergenerational encouragement. And um, then kind of both of us together have a heart for holiness. So those three things were it's just holiness, intergenerational ministry, and, and supernatural ministry. We kind of find folks who can speak into one or, or more than one of those areas, and we interview them. We've had, I think, I don't, I don't even know how many seasons we've had so far, but we've probably got about 100 podcasts up there right now. We've connected with New Room, uh, which is out of Seedbed, a publishing house. New Room is a, a conference that happens every year at Nashville, Tennessee, and they have taken us on as a podcast under their house. So we, some of our interviews in the fall come out of the New Room the new room conference we spend it's, it's actually next week and, and we will spend most of the three days that we're there interviewing folks um so we get to glean from their more global voices and then the rest of the year we we glean from our own just people we've run across who um whose voices we think need to be heard oh that's beautiful and i didn't know that about the new room conference i'm familiar with seedbed so I'll definitely have to check that out. I mean, if it's anything like our conversation we've had, I'm sure it's going to be fabulous. So I am going to encourage people to check it out. It'll be in the show notes. Do you uh, like to close with some kind of advice for women who are really kind of starting out? Um, maybe they've just identified a call or maybe they're just new in ministry. They're already ordained, but they're still new in ministry. I don't know, words of wisdom, something Mm -hmm. you like to share. Yeah. Go after your own healing. Go after your own healing with gazelle-like intensity, to borrow a phrase from Dave Ramsey. Go after your own healing to the extent that you know who you are in Christ and to the extent that you have exposed and dealt with your own wounds. You will be a much greater gift to the body of Christ. We tend to get busy 
and neglect our own personal spiritual care. So I would say, first of all, go after your own wounds and find healing and do whatever it takes to do that. And if it means postponing your own entry into the ministry world, take the time to make sure that you are whole and holy before you get into ministry. Otherwise, you will find yourself um, selling shoes 10 years from now and talking about how bad the church was to you. Um, And the the second thing that I would say is um, take time to understand your own spiritual gifts so that you don't run the risk as I did of getting out beyond your own gifts and your own call, um, trying to fulfill someone else's vision of what church ought to be. I should have known better in those early days than going after the big box rapid growth model um, just because that was the model they were teaching and that was the model they wanted from me. It was never God's call on my life. And it stole a lot of joy from me that my decision to lean into that stole a lot of joy from me in those early days. Um, So be careful to guard your own call. That's nobody else's job, but yours. When Jesus or well, I don't know if Jesus says it, but it's in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, guard your heart. The the writer of Proverbs says, guard your heart is a wellspring of life. That's really what I'm talking about. Guard your own sense of call, your own relationship with God. And then I want to give one more. And this is, they're not even in any particular order. They're all equally important. And that is tend to your own disciplines. Um, Faith follows discipline. It is so easy when you engage in the work of ministry to just say, well, I'm doing ministry, I'm writing messages, so I'm, I'm in the word all the time, I'm praying with people all the time, and so that's my prayer life and my personal devotional life, because I'm doing it for other people all the time. That's not your own prayer life, that's not your own devotional life. Go after the presence of God. The presence of God is worth pursuing, he is worth it, he is worthy, and, and the kingdom of God is our ultimate aim, and so we, we want to see it, we want to We want to get to the place where we hear his voice, where we can see kingdom moves when they're happening. And we don't do it for the sake of our ministry or for the sake of our families, for the sake of our children. We do it because Jesus all by himself is worth it. Mm. Go after your own healing. And that comment you said about, yeah, 10 years later, you'll be selling shoes and complaining about the church, which made me think of the spiritual trauma group that you're doing. Uh, I mean, that is so important right now. That is so important right now. I almost think that every one of our churches should have some kind of a spiritual trauma support group. Yeah, because COVID really sucked the life out of a lot of people. They really, they, they recognized somewhere in the middle of COVID, a lot of people came to the very, very hard reality that they did not have spiritual roots to, to hold them through that deep, deep trauma, personal trauma. So it came out, that's where all the deconstruction has come from. Everybody's deconstructing. And so um, we're just offering it as an opportunity to, sh- to, to help people reform their understanding of who God is. And um, we're doing it using the 12 steps uh, so that it's we, we avoid the temptation to teach rather than letting people explore their own faith and their own wounds. That's been a really fun thing to get involved with. And I'm right, I'm right there with you. Yes. I don't know that we do anybody a favor telling them what to believe right. um, because they don't have any ownership over it. They have to discover right. it. Fabulous conversation. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much. 